everyone always has something to say relative to education. I think the fact that so many people have opinions and perspectives on the schools is wonderful. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jeff Rose, and we are here for the Leading Education Podcast. And this is one episode in a series based upon, uh, as you might imagine, a very, very important topic that we are all grappling with to some degree in some way. I have been focusing on the reopening of schools, and this is not a matter of whether we're open or not. It's a matter of how and why and I'm doing my best to try to expose those listening, which are parents, teachers, even we have some students and, of course, administrators, to what's happening locally. I live in Georgia, just outside in the metro area of Atlanta, but also um, what's happening throughout the country, which I think is really, really important. And I've been having some really, really impressive guests. So I started this episode with my own opinion and perspective based upon uh, my own experience um, as a superintendent, but also as, as a parent. I shifted in. I talked with um, a D.C. attorney who supports districts all over the country, Dan Gordon, who did a marvelous job. Recently, Maurice Marcise Beasley um, at a Clayton County who also shed some perspective, not just on his district, but what he's seeing throughout the country and then related to his own community and today I have an incredible guest and so very very excited we're gonna have uh, an informal conversation I have a number of questions and today Maureen Downey is with us and Maureen is a longtime reporter for the AJC in fact if you are one who cares about or pays attention to education, and I am one, you know who Maureen is. So she has written with editorials and opinion pieces about local, state, and federal education policy for more than 20 years. She's also taught college classes in mass communications and journalism. She's learned more about schools from having four children in them, and her own education includes an undergraduate degree from the University of Delaware and a master's degree from, the, from Columbia University. She's worked for newspapers in New Jersey and Florida and has covered many school boards. And like I said, um, this is uh, a pleasure for me to be able to talk with Maureen and, and really kind of this this really frank and open and intimate way, and so um, I'm very appreciative. So welcome to the show, Maureen. Thank you. Um, so let me just, you know, um, kind of, you know, ask you this. I, I gave a very quick version of your bio. I could have read a lot more, and there's a lot of here on the page, but, you know, there's some things I just naturally would miss, even if I read every detail. So maybe tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what is mo- what has motivated you in the past and what's motivating you these days. I think what I would like to um, emphasize is that in covering education, I have a really simply a simple criteria, and that is what works and what works best and what doesn't work. And I, I often get reader complaints because they think I'm taking a political stance. For example, I am wary of school vouchers, and I will get emails to this day, even when vouchers are not in the news, about that position. Um, but it's, it's really based on what I, the research out there. I happen to love sort of learning, reading reports. My favorite thing is a new 100-page research report that comes out because I get my cup of tea and I sit down and read it. I love interviewing researchers. I love uh, interviewing educators who have stepped back to take a big picture. So I I think one thing I I would simply like to say is that why I'm drawn to education is 
is that it's a critical element, obviously. It's a key element to what will make America function and um, what changes lives. But also, there's a lot of good work being done. And, and I really feel like part of my job is sharing that work. And, and, and some of that work can be, you know, can seem boring. I mean, many people don't want to read research papers or they don't want to simply, they don't want to look at the data. And I think that's a mistake because I think that's really where we learn a lot about what works and what doesn't work. So I, let me just a follow-up question on that. I assume that as, as you're looking into research and, you know, really trying to focus on what works uh, best for students, um, naturally you must always get caught in between this, you know, political conversation, because education actually is so political. It's one of those things that we can all relate to. Everyone has an opinion on, and often they just, you know, they have their own filter. And so educators, educational leaders, and, and yourself, I just, I've learned you just navigate that every day, regardless of your opinion and perspective, which actually may not be political, but it gets classified as though it is. I think one of the shocks to me in my long career uh, has been how much politics influence educational decisions. And I see that most clearly in the state legislature, where for quite a while we've had scripts, I, I always call them scripts, being handed to the legislature. And they don't even question the script. They simply say, this is what we have to do. And one example a few years ago, and I, I'm, I'm making this example because the legislature did the rare thing and conceded they botched this. They simply bought something that was circulating around at the national levels of the GOP that a state should mandate spending, that 65% has to go into the classroom. And they passed this law without any really understanding what it meant and whether or not it made any sense. And it didn't make any sense because different school systems have different needs and how you define the classroom is murky. And very quietly, that law went away because our legislature came to its senses. But you'll be surprised. For example, a few years ago, the uh, push in the Georgia legislature was that uh, evaluations, test scores of, of students have to count for half of teacher evaluations. Uh, yes, yeah. There was no real data on that. That was simply, again, a script they were handed. And suddenly there are these folks you know, at the uh, podium uh, demanding we do that. Um, I can recall one of the funniest things I've ever been to was a hearing where somebody was talking about common core standards, that they were the devil and they were going to ruin Georgia schools. And the legislature making that point, uh, he was from the um, coastal area, was asked if he read the common core standards. He hadn't read the common core standards, yet he was sponsoring legislation to gut them. And, and really, that happens all the time in the legislature. Somebody grabs the ear of a prominent legislator, sells them on some point. Again, another example recently would have been last summer when there was a push to start a mandate when schools start in Georgia, which seems now almost farcical since we're the, the date of when school starts is the least of our problems in 2020. But they were talking about mandating a state, a, a state date for that. And that came from the tourist industry. There was no educational soundness to that proposal. And I'm at this hearing uh, where one business leader after the other and tourist, tourism leader is speaking about this. And I'm thinking, how could they be deferring to these folks rather than the educators here? Yet that's what happens. 
It does, and you know, I've I noticed that you know, obviously here in Georgia, the the one thing I can say is, unfortunately, I think that that is really really common about how things happen um, politically in general. I remember my my time in Oregon, which is a very different climate, right, in a lot of ways. I mean, culturally, politically, etc. And that still happens. I was the president of the superintendent association, which meant I. I kind of transition between, you know, the, the, the administrative perspective, the, um, the union perspective, the school board perspective, and then, you know, obviously our politicians. And so many times um, an initiative would come to the table that would end up in a huge shift in not resources, but um, also certain mandates that was based upon a story that a legislator had heard a story, you know, a parent who said, here's a dilemma. And before you know it, it gets legs, right? And it becomes a script. And then we're voting, right? And, right. and putting something into a law that can impact every kid in the state overnight. Um, right. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. So um, one thing I've noticed recently is that as a superintendent myself, I have faced some tough stuff in the past, but I've told a lot of people I've never faced anything like this. Right, I have a lot of family and friends who often say, "Man, aren't you aren't you lucky? Aren't you so happy that you're not in that seat right now?" I'm not. I'm not always happy about that. Sometimes I feel guilty that I'm not. But um, this is dramatically different. So I'm curious as what your thoughts about the level of challenge you know students, family, and educators are facing now. What are what are you noticing because you have been writing about this ongoing topic uh, as it relates to you know COVID and even what we're facing in terms of racial equity issues. So just what's your perspective on the current time? I think the current time, and I've been reporting on, uh, reporting for more than 30 years, but I think this is the most challenging moment in public education, actually in education, because private schools are also grappling with this. And I, I think that the problem here that we're having is that everyone has their own set of needs. So we have teachers who have a set of needs and, and uh, uppermost, I think, the teachers are keeping themselves and their families safe. We have parents who have a set of needs and along with safety, they also have a need to get back to work or go to work and feel like their children are physically safe during the day. Then we have superintendents and, uh, who have, who have uh, an agenda, which is how do I keep students learning? What is the best environment for that? And all of those needs are actually in conflict now because of, of, of COVID-19. And you know, I, I'll, I'll cite Gwinnett County. I have no doubt that Mr. Wilbanks, who leads Gwinnett County Schools, is de devoted to the idea of, of, of his students learning, his students doing well. He is very worried about his students being out of school. And as a result of that, he has now phasing in the return of in-person classes that starting this week in, in Gwinnett. I have probably in the last few days received 100 to 200 between Facebook Messenger and email, um, uh, really letters of concern, notes of concern from teachers who are dreading this, who really feel like because they have a spouse with cancer, they have an elderly parent, they have a child with an autoimmune disease. This going back into the classroom is, is, is terrifying them. But I know that Mr. Wilbanks' issue was these young kids, our kids with special needs, they're losing valuable ground. 
Uh, we may not be able to regain this ground. We need to get those kids uh, back in classrooms because that's the best environment for you know, particularly special needs students. So all of these things are, are at conflict and I think there is no resolution that can solve all of them. Right, there's, there's, there's so many consequences um, for every decision and uh, more than we've ever seen, right? I mean, I, I, I did a podcast in March, I think, with Brian Hightower, the superintendent in, in Cherokee, and we were referring to just the idea of sending students home. I, I think I called it flippantly, you know, uh, snow day on steroids. Right, and of course, that, and in the meantime, right, it's so different now. It's, it was almost silly that's what I referred it to. But um, it is really difficult for a decision to be made because there are so many downsides of having students in school and having them out of school and how you do that safely. And in the meantime, teachers. Right, our, our our teachers are an incredible predicament right now, um, and so it is. I, I I'm agreeing with you, which is why I know that I've never led through anything like this, and and I'm tracking, um, and I, I know you are too, how this is being handled throughout the country. So I guess my next question is about Georgia. So what is your perspective and opinion, and what are you seeing as it relates to how Georgia is handling this crisis? I think Georgia has been undermined by a lack of leadership at the top. I think our governor, in his hands-off approach to schools, has put a no-win. I, I, think, I think I heard you call it a lose-lose situation not long ago in one of the podcasts on the desks of superintendents. And that is, um, they are not epidemiologists, they are not medical doctors, uh, they are not statisticians. So they're they're being asked to make educational decisions without the medical knowledge that they need, without the research that they need. I think it would have been helpful had the governor taken a, a larger stand in this and had he set some parameters. I don't think districts have reliable metrics. When is it safe to open? When is it safe not to open? They're deciding that district by district. And, and you mentioned Cherokee County. Cherokee County opened a couple weeks ago with metrics that almost all national medical experts would have said were not conducive to reopening. And as a consequence to that, they've had their challenges. So they had three high schools they had to close because of the number of students and faculty in quarantine. And now they just announced yesterday that they're going to come back, reopen those high schools September 3rd, I believe, with a hybrid model so that they don't have, they have fewer students in the building at any given time. I think districts like uh, Cherokee and Paulding that opened early and thus got national attention, much of it I think those superintendents would say was um, negative and not necessarily fair all the time, given the scope of what they were trying to do and given their community inclination, which was to reopen, particularly in Paulding. Uh, but they opened early and they opened, I think, with some missteps. And I think they could have been avoided had the state really issued strong guidelines, and again, let me emphasize metrics, numbers that tell them, that tell the leaders what um, transmission rates should be in place before they open safely. And that, that just didn't happen in Georgia. Right. I, actually, that was going to be my next question, but I think in a way you almost answered it, so you can expand if you'd like. But Marcise Beasley and I, were, we were talking about this last week, and you know, he was mentioning, he goes, we're in this predicament on 
Okay, so we have, right, we have data or we have, you know, science. Um, right. We have then community needs, what a community is asking, and communities are different, right? They just, they just are. Um, and some of their needs are naturally going to be different. And then there's just the overall politics, right? The, some things that maybe shouldn't be political, they just are still. Um, and, you know, then leaders, whether that be superintendents or school boards or central office leaders, etc., are making decisions for thousands of kids trying to find a sweet spot between those three really important pressures that you can try to deny them or ignore them, but you can't. Um, and yeah, I'm sure you are seeing that comparing, uh, especially not just the metro area, but districts all over Georgia. Yes, and, and I think that Clayton and Dr. Beasley actually are role models because he was one of the first superintendents to come out and say, we're not gonna reopen because these numbers are not safe for my community. And I think because he was emphatic and he was clear and he shored up that comment with, with data, it seems like Clayton has not had the revolt that other areas have had. Now, I will tell you, I am not hearing from many parents uh, or teachers in Atlanta or DeKalb or Clayton because the school leader, uh, leadership of those districts came out early and, and emphatically on, we're going to go with remote until this gets better. I think the districts that are having the conflict are those that try to please everyone. They try to offer hybrid. They try to offer online, and then ultimately they try to, they're trying to offer in person under very challenging circumstances. So I don't know why a Dr. Beasley could do what he did, except that he might have had more community buy-in. He might have worked on that longer. And he's also a, quite a charismatic leader and, and well-respected and well-liked by his community. So he might have had an edge to some other superintendents who may have um, a more challenging school board, a more divided community. But I think Clayton and Atlanta and DeKalb, with their early announcements, they were going to go remote and stay remote until the numbers improved, really saved themselves a lot of conflict and controversy. Yeah, I uh, and I, I would agree with that. I think I think Marcis, he did a he 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 did a really good job. He has done a really good job almost and he even mentioned this. I do pay attention to politics, but I'm just going to make the decisions as best I can relative to what the data tells me. And right. and he just said, well, I know there's going to be, you know, challenges with that. But he, you're exactly right. He has been very, very clear. Um, he is the most of his conversations, even at the board level, right, are not about what should we do. Right. Right. He's yeah. been very clear. This is what is to this is what we should do, period. Um, and I think when you get to the place on um, a leadership perspective, when you uh, approach this as a question, you know, then you, you have to, of course, be inclusive of opinions. But if you are too much so, then you create these divides where you just can't win. And so I, I, I agree. I think he's done a marvelous job, um, as of some other districts. I'm just being very clear. And uh, I can imagine from what you're viewing, them getting maybe less heat because of it. Right. Uh, you know, I think you know, Paulding is an example of where I think a community faction that that does not believe this is a, a real threat, that COVID-19 is a real threat. They do not believe that um, their uh, children are in danger. And they also don't believe that teachers should have the option to sort of decide if they want to go to the classroom or not. They believe as taxpayers, uh, these are uh, employees and they need to simply do their jobs. It seems like that faction gained a lot of ground quickly 
and, and certainly had uh, supporters on the school board. I've, I've watched a few of their school board meetings in the last uh, couple months, and I have been surprised at the applause that people get when they say kids shouldn't have to wear masks. Um, it's a personal choice. There's not really strong evidence. And that gets really cheers and applause. And the poor teacher who gets up there and says, I'm really worried about this. Uh, my students aren't wearing masks and, I, and I'm nervous. I'm going to, I'm going to get sick or my children are going to get sick. That, that emotional statement is met with silence. I mean, absolutely nobody. I mean, it's, it's a baffling thing to me how this has come about, how this has become such a political issue when from the start, it should have been a matter of science, but not to get into the federal politics, the national politics, that message was not made clear at that level either. So I think with the White House in the beginning doubting this virus, predicting it would go away quickly, that laid the groundwork for what we have now, which is a political debate on a matter of medicine and science and health. And that, that simply shouldn't be because we should not let someone's um, health depend on uh, who has the political advantage. You know, I've 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 always read everything that you that, that you write, but um, I know that I know for a fact that as as this has occurred, I, I've read every single thing that you put out there, and clearly, what what I know is you know you're you do pay attention to some of the the politics and the science, but you also have um, a finger on the pulse of the community. So I'm curious, what what are some of the misconceptions amongst the 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 public? around these decisions, but also, you know, the science, etc., that, that you would want them to know. If I used to think, if only I could help parents and community know just a few things, we probably wouldn't be even debating, regardless of the topic. So what have, what have you noticed about the misconceptions and what would you want them to know? Well, one misconception that I'm seeing in full force in the past couple of weeks uh, because of the fact that teachers are speaking out about not wanting to go back into the physical classroom. There's a misconception among some people that if teachers don't go back into the physical classroom and teach remotely, that they're not doing their jobs, that they're almost on vacation, or that they're spending a couple hours a day on their job. I would venture um, that most teachers who are trying to teach online, they, they are learning something that is brand new. It is something that involves a lot of training. I just had a, a, a teacher preparation professor make a comment to me earlier today that this is not something we're teaching them in, in their programs. We don't teach them how to do a virtual classroom. We don't teach them how to, uh, as to use the word pivot to remote during a pandemic. So teachers are actually working harder because they're learning a new skill. And I have done enough, uh, um, uh, videos and, and, and interviews using technology to know it is not fail safe. Uh, there are many, many problems. Even when you're, I was watching something that was sponsored by a technology company and the whole, the whole thing went dead. So teachers are, are coping with a lot of stuff. So a uh, misconception, teachers um, are the ones uh, don't want to go back into the classroom because uh, they don't want to work. That is malarkey. Teachers would have much easier lives if the classroom were safe and they could go back rather than having to transform how they do this job. And, um, you know, I'm kind of old and I was telling a friend yesterday, I have great sympathy for these teachers because I don't want to learn all this new stuff. I mean, 
I'm on a new platform with my blog and I was literally up to like three in the morning trying to figure out how to download a photo because it was so confusing. It's supposed to be everything we change, by the way, it's supposed to improve our lives. And you know, this is a new platform, it's gonna be easier. It's always harder because there's a learning curve. So I think that's the first misconception. I believe that Georgia's teachers for the most part would love to be teaching everyone's children in a classroom, but they have to worry about their health. And I, I think another issue here is that many, many parents in their emails to me minimize the risks of COVID-19. Uh, I, I agree that the majority of people do recover from COVID who, who come down with it, but I've known enough people, interviewed enough people, read enough personal accounts of people with it to know it can be a very frightening disease. And it, we're only learning now what it might leave you with, that you might be you know, so-called over COVID in two weeks, but it doesn't mean that there are not repercussions. And some of those are very serious. We're seeing the rising research on heart ailments. So I think that to minimize this and say, it's just the flu, which I hear every single day, at least one email a day compares it to the flu. And I send out the numbers to show it's nothing like the flu. And as easily as this is transmitted, it is nothing like the flu. Uh, so I think that parents who want to say this should not make teachers nervous, they don't have a right to say that because they don't know what this teacher's family conditions are. And the teacher may marry, you know, could shake off COVID in two weeks. It doesn't mean the teacher's 80-year-old father or mother could. So I think that's a dangerous statement to make that you can assume, uh, you, you can speak to someone's else, someone else's health. Uh, so those are, I think, the two major um, misconceptions. And I also think that, um, I, you know, I think one misconception that we can get into, and I'd love to get your view on, is how effective online learning is going to be. I mean, I think right now we are in the midst of a lot of online learning. And I have to say that I think that those few experts, there's only a few who say this, that it can be as effective as in person. I think that's is a big misconception or a misconception at least that is worth some attention because I think the evidence on online learning and its effectiveness um, is worrisome to me. I mean, the fact that we're relying on this method, even though the research tells us um, it is not as good as face-to-face. -face. And I, I think when people say that it makes parents nervous and people try to avoid saying it, but I think it may be true. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll just give you an opinion on that right now. Um, I think that we, we, we can find some research that points to what you just said, that it's not as effective. And um, as an educator, as a career-long educator, um, regardless of what the research says, I, I can tell you what my gut tells me, what my heart tells me, and that is um, it's not. It's, it's not as effective. It's nothing close. Um, I've often believed and still do that you know, relationships are the cornerstone of true, um, of, of a true, um, of true education, right? So what we know is students um, need to feel connected and loved by educators. And when they do, um, their, their learning is impacted in a very positive way. Majority of teachers go into the work, not because they're driven by their content, but because they want to make a difference in the lives of kids. And to do that, it takes relationship. It's, it, it really does, and it's really hard to do via an online environment for which we're not very good at right now. Right. Now, that being said, 
I think there are some incredible opportunities, um, things that we're learning right now that will benefit education in the long run, that actually we're going to be pushed to do that we probably wouldn't have done or had the sense of urgency to do in the past, but we will now as it relates to creating efficiencies um, that can be done online. Um, I do think there are some really creative things and ways that we can teach kids um, that we're learning about right now, but to use this as the strategy, I think we need to be really honest. Um, it's not the same, it's not as effective, and as a parent of two children, my daughter up in you know her room and my son in the basement to keep him focused on what they're working on, I know for a fact this is not the same level of education and pedagogy and instruction and learning our kids would face if they were face-to-face. -face. Now, I think teachers, um, unfortunately, are in this position of having to figure this out right now as they're doing it. And, um, well, you know, they, they want to be back with their kids, and I agree with you. Um, they didn't go into teaching for this. Nobody entered, I want to be a teacher for this kind of environment. Um, but I do hope, and what keeps me afloat as a leader and a long-time ed educator is that we do start to think about some changes we can make as we come out of this eventually to create efficiencies and to make education even better. But the current state, of course it's nothing. It's nothing close to what it would be like if my children, all children, were in a classroom with their peers. And that's a huge part of learning is not just cramming of content, but also learning and interacting with other students. And so, um, I mean, I, I think that's, that's just how it is. Um, I, I just have to hope for the future that we do learn some things that actually really transform educational practices and push us into a new realm, but we're just not there yet. But is that possible? Because what's interesting is I'm getting these notices about webinars on, let's use this opportunity to reimagine education. Let's talk about what we can learn from this. And I'm thinking, is anyone really in the place to do that? Because a lot of teachers are simply swimming against the current. A lot of parents are sort of barely getting through the day trying to do their job, keep their child on the screen, uh, and then keep their, and, and then work with their child. And I'm wondering, there may be a few academics who have the ability to sit and reimagine, but everybody else is simply trying to sort of stay afloat. So, you think that we will reimagine education from this experience? Because my sense is that once this ends, parents and teachers are both going to want to go back to normal, whatever normal was for them. And I'm not sure major reform or rethinking is going to be welcomed or even possible. So I would love to get your sense on that. So I, don't, I, I think you're right that it's not going to happen right away. And it's not happening right now. Right, I think that systems are in such duress that for them to think about how do we truly reimagine the ones who are doing the work, um, they're they're trying to get through the day, right? They're they're trying to make sure that the system stays moving and right. And, and we're using you know duct tape and chick, chicken wire to keep this thing moving. So I don't think that's going to happen right now. I do think that um, eventually space will be created that I hope educators take advantage of. So when we do come back to quote normal, right? Because we're all going to desire that, because um, that's our that's our comfort. That's what we know. When we do get back to what we know, 
um, I hope that educators and educational leaders also can be reflective on what we learned and think about, therefore, what should transform or change. Because let's face it, um, education needs to constantly change, right? And we should constantly be pushing relative to what we can do better. And education is a really hard ship to turn, not because it's a big ship, it's because it's a fleet. Right, So a district has a fleet of ship, and then you compare that to a state and the country, it's really difficult to move. But I do think there are, are some things that we can learn, not just as it relates to how to integrate technology into instructional practices, but also I think the conversation relative to racial equity right now, for me, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hurt to see what I'm seeing, but I'm also really inspired to think about now needs to be a time that we do some things we weren't able to do in the in the past and I do think that it is going to be ripe to make some changes relative to equity um, as well as supporting students of color differently in the future than we have in the past that is something that I have to believe do I think it's gonna happen right away I don't think it can because we're just trying to survive the day but um, but that will that will continue to be my hope because otherwise uh, maybe I'll just have a hard time sleeping. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think there are many teachers who share your concern about racial equity. But again, I, it's almost to me now that it has to be a teacher to teacher thing. And I, I was quite disappointed, not, not to be harping on Gwinnett County, but I was quite disappointed to see the AJC had a story about a Gwinnett teacher who had in the background of her virtual classroom had a, a Black Lives Matter poster that parents want taken down because they see it as political. And the county, which in my view, district should have come out and said to the parents, sorry, that is not a political statement. That is simply an affirmation that we care about all students. And we're not taking this complaint seriously. We're not going to reprimand the teacher. We're not even going to talk to the teacher about it. Instead, they did talk to the teacher and they did use the term the political position. So I think we're, I, I do think we're a far, that, that deserves so much time and attention, this issue, because it's at every level. I mean, I, I see it so often, in, not just in discipline rates, but who's in what classes, and how teachers regard their students, assumptions teachers, we all make about, about people. I, I really do think that's a big topic, but I don't know who has the bandwidth right now to really get into that at the level it needs to be done. I mean, do you see that happening anywhere in the country? Does anybody have the time and resources to really examine that, and not just examine it, but act on it? So, n not, not yet. I, I do think it's gonna be a slow turn, but the fact is, and you mentioned a story, w what I thought was impressive is just that it happened. Not, what, not how the district handled it, but the fact that, you know, that was something that occurred that created discourse and conversation and some people thinking about it. Um, and I have seen school districts, right? In my, my past district where I was superintendent, Beaverton School District, um, uh, months ago, six, eight weeks ago, I went to their website and I was talking to one of their administrators and on the front of their website, Black Lives Matter. And they put on every reader board in the school district. And it was very controversial, right? It didn't, that's, that's not something that just went well because everyone thought the same politically in that environment. But they decided to create the discourse. And right. a year ago, they never would have put that up. Right. 
Right. Well, I do think that's true. And I think I have seen, uh, I'm in the city of Decatur and it has been very open and very forward thinking on that. It's simply a question of what it can do to translate that, given the fact it is also, Decatur is also fully virtual right now. So um, uh, one thing I, I that, that I want to get into, and, and the teacher in Gwinnett made me think about this, and I would love your view of this, is that to me, this has been a bruising experience for our teacher workforce. And I don't know if all the teachers who tell me they're going to quit or retire really are going to do so because there is that need for a paycheck. But I have never gotten so many uh, emails and messages from disillusioned teachers who think that this may be the last year for them because of what they're being asked to do. And, and I am just wondering if you think the teacher workforce, how they will come out of this. Um, I'm, I'm worried about the teacher workforce, right? So um, I'm worried for a couple reasons. I think we're already headed into a teacher shortage. We are, we've known this for years, right? That should not be any surprise to us. Um, so we knew that was the case. We were also at a place where um, teachers, even a year ago before this, um, the level of satisfaction, job satisfaction, um, was at an all-time low in, in the United States right, where a third of teachers, um, and this is according to some data that I looked at, you know, years ago, would say, wouldn't recommend to their own children to become educators. Um, that was already alarming. You add this to that, and um, it, it cause, it's, it's a major worry. Not only the teachers that are currently kind of in the trenches doing that work and how they manage and survive. I don't mean literally, I mean just, you know, almost uh, emotionally and instructionally this, but also the message it sends to other people who want to be educators, right? What is the motivator right now for someone to raise their hand and say, I want to go be in the classroom? Because the current environment is not what any of our teachers signed up for, right? So they're doing their best because one, of course, they have to live and survive. And two, you know, they, they probably loved their job, but likely don't now. And so um, I am worried. My hope is this. My hope is, like everyone's, someday, some way, and it's going to be a while. It's going to be longer than most people think. We get back to a little bit of semblance of normal, right? And then we start to, um, teachers can start to feel this is why I went into the profession, to see their students in front of them, to start making those connections, to see students make connections with other students. Um, and that will keep them going. And in the meantime, you know, I hope that, once again, I, that education as a, as, as a concept really rises to a level of importance and maybe we prioritize it more than we did in the past. I think the one thing that all families are struggling through right now is how, how am I supposed to do this at home? I, I think right now, if you were to ask a parent about their opinion of a teacher, if we were to poll, I bet you they would have more respect for the teacher right now because of what they're facing at home. And I think the narrative of the teacher has always been askew and been off. Um, maybe now that people are getting a taste on what, how hard this is, and by the way, just managing two or three kids as opposed to a classroom or you know a schedule of 180 if you're a high school teacher, um, potentially a level of respect can come from this that wasn't there in the past. These are things that, you know, once again, keep me afloat, but I'm very, very worried right now um, about the overall morale 
of our educators. And I was worried about that prior to COVID. Right. I think that there was a celebration of teachers in the spring, but what always shocks me, and again, 30 years I've seen this, one week we're celebrating the teachers and the next week they're the villains or whatever the story is. And I just don't get it. And if I were a teacher at this point, given what we're asking them to do and the fact that there's this assumption, and, and this is where I think school leaders are missing the mark a little bit, they've been very sort of, um, just quick to say, well, well, we'll pivot to remote. That's the term, pivot to remote, without ever really giving parents a sense of how much work that's going to take. And I feel now the teachers who are teaching during the day and then have these, are, are live streaming into the student homes. And then as one parent says, you have a hundred emails um, if you're teaching middle or high school from parents who are wondering. I, I simply think we are not realizing what we're asking teachers to do when they're, they're really teaching in two different um, uh, modes that are very different and have very different uh, demands on them. So I, I just, I mean, teachers are telling, a friend of mine is an educator at, at a management level in a, in a private school. And she said that this dual teaching of both in-person and, and uh, live streaming, and then trying to get kids the materials they need and reaching out to them, is going to wipe their teachers out. She thinks, you know, in a month, the teachers will you know, essentially be, you know, the walking dead. They'll be so tired from all this. I just don't think we're acknowledging that. Yeah, I, I think, number one, I know for a fact it's exhausting, right? I think just the online process uh, is exhausting and the prep needed to go into how you do something you've never done and how you take, say, an hour of direct instruction that you were prepared to give and say, how do I put this in a 20-minute block? And then as I'm doing so, I have students raising their hand virtually because they can't log on. Or, they, I mean, it is, it is really, really exhausting. And so that, I think that worry is real. Um, so, I mean, it, I, what I see is the messaging sometimes I watch teachers and educational leaders putting on, the, you know, trying to put on this positive face and saying, this is going to be fine. We're going to do this. Let's go get it this week, which, by the way, is great. I mean, it's good, really good when people are optimistic. Sometimes the messaging is a is bit off because that's not the reality. Um, I do think when somebody can say, this is going to be messy, it's not going to be great, but we're gonna do as best we can making this situation as good as we can for students, but bear with us, right? Let's, let's all give each other some grace. And if we do, we will get through it. It's just not gonna be easy, ready, go. I think that the, the messaging can sometimes be a little bit more honest. And if it was, I do think people may be a little bit more tolerant. Cause you're right, some of the, that tolerance, it just comes and goes, doesn't it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I said this even last spring. I was saying, look at all the grace everyone is giving each other. How, how, how beautiful that is. And I was already warning, if we don't have this locked and loaded by the time we start school, it's not going to be there anymore, right? I mean, the level of patience we have for, you know, the, you know, the, the internet connections being lost, et cetera, or the, the, the online network not working or work. It's not going to be there anymore because months have passed and the, you know, the perception would be school district should have figured this out by now. Right. right? And, and I'm finding parents, you know, I'm, I'm on several parent forums across districts. And, um, you know, for example, parents in Cobb the other morning were quite unhappy because of 
lack, there were some issues with connecting to the kids' classes. And then parents were saying, well, I sent the teacher an email and I haven't heard back. And it turns out the email, you know, they sent it like six hours ago. And there, I think people have, I understand because, you know, honestly, my four children, my youngest are in college now. And on my, my street, I live in Decatur and I have a lot of um, folks who work at the CDC and they are, um, they're, they're researchers or they're physicians and they are working at home while they have children, you know, five, seven, and nine. And I am thinking to myself, I would probably be going batty now because my job is so demanding and is so time sensitive that I can't stop my job to help a kid with something, with a struggle with the computer or, or a tech issue. And I have great sympathy for these parents. I think it's an heroic effort. I think a lot of parents have set standards that are way too high. I think we may have to scale back on what we think parents can accomplish. But I also think we may have to scale back on what we think teachers and, and schools can accomplish. That teachers can't turn around emails necessarily in a day because what you don't see is that teacher may have 100 emails. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I think you're right, and you know, it's one of those one of those situations is, you know, how, how judge people make judgment very quickly and easily without ever assuming what their life is like, right? right. So, the the teachers who are trying to do this and have their own children pulling on their pants, right, saying right. asking questions and, um, right, I think this is a, a cultural problem that we have, right? And we're so quick to make uh, pass judgment, and by the way. Um, we, you know, we're upset with our teachers who are doing this work trying to support our children. It's, right. it's ironic in some ways. What do you right. think, Maureen, that um, you know, in this conversation so far I haven't asked? Or you know, what more questions do you have that you think would be important for us to address? Now, I think one thing I'd be interested in your view on is when we come out of this, and, and again, we don't know when we're going to come out of it. It may not be told to... 21-22 school year, honestly, where we have everything back to normal, as much as normal can be. If you had to talk about what districts need to do, um, and, and a lot of people are not using the word remediation, they prefer that you use acceleration, but at some point it may be remediation and acceleration. I think that, I, I don't think we should minimize, you know, there's holistic professors at UGA have written pieces for me where they say, you know, don't worry about this. We're all in the boat together and just worry about your child's mental health and worry about, you know, serenity and trying to help your children cope with this and because they will be able to catch up later. Is that true when you have a, a learning loss or diminished learning, however you want to describe it, for, that goes on for a year, can kids catch up? And when schools reassemble in a form that we recognize, in a form that we feel is healthier and more effective, how would you recommend districts begin this process? Well, you know, uh, I'll start by saying it's really easy for me to make recommendations, right? So we all love to make recommendations. So um, know that it, this comes from a place of not knowing all the details that I would need to know. But um, I think catch up is the wrong idea, right? So I don't think we should say, how do we, how do we catch up? As though this never happened, I think that right. that would be um, that would be silly and unrealistic. I think that we need to look at what's the priority. So right now, um, what I believe is the priority is not necessarily content loss, right? I think there has been a lot of loss as it relates to the social emotional issues of kids um, and families, 
And I think that needs to be prioritized. I think that if someday, some way, we're going to get back on track, which we will, in terms of content and learning, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, etc., um, we're going to have to prioritize. We better prioritize some of the emotional needs of our kids first. Um, which, by the way, gets back to, I think, why most teachers got into the work anyway. Um, so I think that is really important. The other is, I think it's also important that we start to think about how we prioritize kids. And that, that sounds strange, but there are some districts around the country, and you know, you mentioned Gwinnett as an example. Gwinnett is not bringing back all students this week, right? They're right. bringing back certain students, right? And I think that when we bring back however we do that, it's not just about bringing them back, but what sort of support are we going to give them? Let's face it, if there is a student with special needs right now, right, a highly autistic student at home, are we truly thinking that they're spending five and a half hours online listening to, and you know, it's not happening. So um, that student is gonna have different needs. Elementary, K through three, they're gonna have different needs, right? That, that first onboarding to learning. Students of poverty, so are we going to maybe take advantage of this, really look at this through a lens of equity, which I would recommend, and say, listen, if students of poverty have a different scenario right now, which could be you know, the kind of supervision they have at home, the uh, kind of supports, the technology, or you know, maybe the lack of connectivity, they are experiencing something different than my kids are. Right, and my, my my two children are not special needs, right? And you know they they live in a home with a lot of connection. They have plenty of space. They have two parents to help them when they can, and you know so they have certain advantages. You know what we want to get back to, but I also know there are some kids that probably need and deserve more attention than mine. And I recommend school districts, even as we bring them back, start to pay attention now on the kind of support, especially on the social emotional front, for some students, it is naturally should be different than others. Um, and some districts have done that really well. I know districts in um, right now, just outside of Seattle, that have already looked at not just their space, but when they bring kids back, even the time of day. So when they all come back, they know they're going to have a different kind of day in terms of the schedule for certain students based upon their circumstance. So that would be my recommendation is let's just not, when we get them back, let's also know how we're going to prioritize needs and align staff accordingly. So Yeah, uh, you know, I agree with you, but I do think um, that one challenge with that is that, um, you know, um, a great quote that I always go back to is, uh, Jonathan Kozel, who once said to me, um, uh, parents don't want a level playing field. <laughs> they want, for all children, they want their child to have an edge and that school, schools have to work around that very human instinct. And my concern would be that for what you, for what you just described, is that every parent is going to believe their child paid a price. And when their child goes back, they're going to want more from the school for their child and how do schools create priority lists that don't upset some parents who feel like their children are not high enough on that priority list? And I think that is a very difficult issue and actually has impeded, impeded equity uh, up to this point in Georgia in some districts. Oh, all over, not beyond I mean, Georgia. I would, I would say Fulton was one of them, actually. Maybe you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I so, so number one, I think that 
this is what makes you know the the actually equity is something that everyone likes to uh, talk about and, and agree to yeah we we believe in equity well right. until you really break it down right once again equity is not equal right and by the way equity means that we're going to create systems and structures and policies that actually give a different level of attention and support to some students compared to others based upon their need right and then people say oh yeah of course that makes sense and then when you say now what that means is right that we're going to align resources differently Right, we are going to maybe even have um, resources specific to class size differently based upon. Wait a minute. You mean my children are going to have larger class sizes because? Uh, oh no, 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 that's not a good idea. Right. So equity conceptually is easy for people to agree to, but when it gets down to the details, when it affects them, is where you start to rub people the wrong way. Um, so that that being said, um, I still think it's a moral issue. Right, and so my opinion is that regardless of how controversial it is, um, I see it as a moral issue. And I have two children at home and I love them the same. I don't treat them the same, right? Because they have different needs. And you know, the bottom line is a rising tide lifts all ships and sometimes communities need to be aware that we need to treat students differently, just like we do in our homes, to help them meet their potential. And there needs to be not, this can't just be talk, there needs to be systems and structures, and I do think it's possible, and if I didn't, well then I wouldn't want to do this work. Um, it actually was what brought me to Georgia, um, believing that that is possible. Um, in districts that maybe have, you know, um, kind of a, a north and a south or an east and a west and just about every single district has some sort of train track, right, that separates the district in some way that creates an incredible challenge. But that is the work and the opportunity and I have to believe it's possible because I do. Uh, do you think, and I think this is, um, you know, I know this is a tough question, but I think people would be interested. With your experience in Fulton, leading Fulton, uh, whereby I heard uh, for the first time from many parents in South Fulton that you were paying attention, that you were actually putting the action behind the words. But do you think that came back uh, to haunt you? Do you think that was not well received in some parts of Fulton? Oh, I don't think it haunted. I mean, I, so it wasn't just me. I mean, the I, I think I saw the district. One thing I was so pr proud of in our time in Fulton and still am is that we put certain structures in place, right? So it wasn't, it wasn't a person, it was a, a strategic plan that we called One Fulton that maybe was controversial, but it was also really important to us. And in the meantime, we put this, you know, the school support model, which by the way, created flexibilities for some schools um, compared to others, but also started aligning dollars and supports to student need. Um, and so we were trying to think about at the time, how does every school get something out of a change in our plan? Um, so certain schools in certain environments, they got more flexibility, um, maybe less resource than another school, but also that school who got more resource also had more structure and less flexibility, right? So, um, I, you know, we were proud of that model and we, we saw, I mean, we went from know, 28 failing schools or something down to under 10 in a couple of years. And there's so much more work to be done. Um, you know, I, I think I think Fulton and some other school districts in this country have reason to be proud. And yet, you know, if you truly dig into the data, 
you know, you may have less failing schools in certain, you know, communities. It doesn't mean that we are close to what, you know, creating an infrastructure and a support model for kids based upon what they deserve. And we have a long way to go. And no, I was, I was very pleased with what happened in Fulton. And, you know, and I don't know the details anymore because now I'm just a parent. But I think that infrastructure, equity is one thing, but you have to put some structure in place to ensure that it happens or else it's just be something that people talk about. And I think that's the biggest problem in the equity conversation in education is, you know, people can agree or debate. It takes structure. It takes policy. And by the way, it, it takes a system that aligns resource and support to kids. Um, and I think sometimes that is what gets missed. Right, right. Well, I think parents, again, I think what it comes down to is that, and, you know, resources often translates to money and parents, there's hardly a parent in any school that doesn't believe their child deserves more of whatever works for their child, whether it be more music, uh, more accelerated math, you know, more sports opportunity. Uh, I think parents see what works for their child and they wish there was more of it. So I think that's why I'm so happy I report on schools and don't work in schools because uh, the, the sort of range of constituencies you have to work with and you have to educate and you have to serve is, is, is I think more than I could ever handle. I don't think I'd ever get to sleep at night worrying about all of that. Well, that, that makes sense. I think that's, that's one of the reasons that a lot of people would say uh, to somebody who has the responsibility for making decisions um, for school systems, uh, you know, I don't want your job, right? Um, but in, in, in the meantime, there's also incredible opportunity there too, but it, it is naturally very, very challenging, especially now, like we've already described, right? So um, anyway, so how about this? I, I want to probably end just by saying thank you. I know how, how busy you are right now because, um, like I said, I, I read everything you put out. And I hope that, that you know, I'm assuming that you have a lot of people tell you um, your work on reporting, even if it sometimes feels political, the, your focus on, um, you know, trying to bring at this conversation, this narrative of what's happening in school districts to the public is important and valued. And so um, and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I, I think I got a lot out of this, got some good ideas. And uh, if anybody out there wants to reach me, it's very easy. It is M Downey, M-D-O-W-N-E-Y at AJC.com. And I also encourage teachers and parents if they, um, I run a lot of guest columns, so I'd encourage them to submit or students. I love running student work and I, I get some great stuff. And uh, actually, before this pandemic, I got a whole bunch of great submissions. I think it was John's Creek from an English class there. And literally, they arrived when this whole world blew up. So there are pieces that didn't quite work in the new world. But uh, I encourage teachers to, um, to push their kids who want to be writers to send me some stuff. And what I'll do uh, for the listeners as well as, as Marina, I'll put your information on how they reach out to you okay. in our notes. So they'll have access to that as well. So. Um, you know, hey, who knows, maybe in the near future we end up talking again because, hey, let's face it, there's no shortage of topics right now. Right, right. And maybe it'll be happier times in 2021. <laughs> yeah, you're, uh, 2020 has been an interesting year, right? There's lots of interesting, yeah. like, what, memes on this topic. So, um, yeah, so maybe someday that'll be in the rearview mirror. Right. Well, thank you. Okay, well, be well, Maureen. Appreciate you. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.
Thanks for listening to Leading Education with Jeff Rose, hosted by Jason Pace and Jeff Rose, and recorded at Serendipity Labs in Alpharetta, Georgia. We are produced and edited by Carson Pace. Our theme music is by Full Year of Panic. If you're listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.